I'd like to um, uh, start off uh, by uh, reading a selection from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Who is Aslan? asked Susan. Aslan, said Mr. Beaver, and and yes, he was a beaver. Why don't you know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood, but not often here, you understand. Never in my time or my father's time, but the word has reached us that he has come back. He is in Narnia at this moment. He'll settle the white queen all right. It is he, not you, that will save Mr. Tomnus. She won't turn him into a stone, too, said Edmund. Love you, son of Adam. What a simple thing to say, answered Mr. Beaver with a great laugh. Turn him into stone? She can stand on her own two feet and look him in the face. It'll be the most she can do, and more than I expect of her. No, no. He'll put all to rights, as it says in an old rhyme in these parts. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. You'll understand when you see him. But shall we see him? asked Susan. My daughter of E, that's what I brought you here for. I'm to lead you where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I, I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Now, I want you to know I was assigned not only the, the scripture today, but I was assigned the title of the sermon Where is Christmas? Now, it's dangerous, and I won't even try to get into the mind of Sam who appointed uh, this title for me. But I I suppose he's raising this question because the two texts that have been given, as you notice, these are the openings of Mark and John, and neither one of them make reference to Jesus' birth. So, so how can that be? Why, why would they not do that? Now, again, if I can't get into Sam's mind, I can't get into Mark or John's minds either. But what I'm going to do is suggest at least what we can learn about Jesus because they do not start with his birth. And that's why I actually opened up with this reading from the first book of the Narnia Chronicles. 
Now, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, if you, if you were to buy a new edition of the Chronicles, you know, there are seven books, and you, you buy them either as one volume or as a set of books, you're going to find, well, if you know about this stuff, that the original order of the books have been changed. When C.S. Lewis wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he, uh, he wrote that first. But new editions have rearranged the order so that they follow chronologically according to, to Narnia time. So that the magician's nephew, which originally appeared next to last is the very first book because it, it presents the creation of Narnia and that's, and you meet, uh, Aslan then creating Narnia. Now I prefer the original order. And the reason is because of the impact that the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe had on me when I first encountered Aslan. He is surrounded in all-inspiring mystery. You know, in the Lion, the Wardrobe, and Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan's character first appears here in this passage as the fulfillment of prophecy. Like Mr. Beaver said, as it says in an old rhyme in these parts, he's talking about prophecy, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. And then furthermore, it describes Aslan in great awe. Again, as said here, I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of bees? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion, and the children start to get nervous now. Well, in the same manner, our two Gospels present Jesus. Mark opens up with his fulfilling prophecy. John opens up presenting Jesus in these terms of great awe. Now, let's take a look at them. Going back to, uh, to the Mark passage, I'm going to read it again, Mark 1, 1 through 3. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, actually, that whole quote is not from Isaiah. It actually begins with Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1. And Mark actually makes a slight change in a pronoun. Malachi passage actually reads this way. Behold, this is God speaking, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. The me is Yahweh, the Lord Almighty. Mark modifies the pronouns to show that the prophecy is about the Messiah, about you, speaking to you, the Messiah. So the Lord Almighty, he's saying, is coming to be sure, but he's coming as the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, this opening then serves us as an introduction into the Isaiah passage that he's speaking of in chapter Isaiah 43. It reads this way, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert, in the desert a highway for our God. So what's happening here, kind of between these two prophets, you have Malachi, he's prophesying the day of the Lord to come, 
And his focus is on how he will purify his people. Isaiah is prophesying about the day of redemption to come. Both of these are coming when the Lord comes. And at that time, then the Lord's glory will be revealed. So they're kind of different perspectives on the same event. The coming of the Messiah in the name of the Lord. And like Mr. Beaver, pronouncing the imminent arrival of powerful Aslan, Mark presents John the Baptist pronouncing the imminent coming of the Messiah. As he will say later, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So, again, what is it that Mark is communicating in his opening? He's communicating this. Jesus is the Messiah who is coming in fulfillment of the ancient prophets. He, he is the long-awaited one who came to, who is coming to ransom his people. Just like uh, Sam had talked about last week, of this hope, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, the, the people have been waiting, anticipating, longing for the coming of the promised Messiah. And now the forerunner, the promised messenger, John the Baptist, hails his imminent arrival. And Jesus did come, as Mark will show. And he came in great power. And he did many miracles to prove his identity as the Messiah. All right, let's move now to to John and his gospel. Remember, again, we spoke of how Mr. Beaver was in, in awe of Aslan, the king of the wood, the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. But is any description of Jesus more exalted and awe-inspiring than what John presents in the opening of his gospel? Let's listen to it again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John presents, Jesus starts off with this term, the word. No other gospel writer uses that term. In the Greek, the the word is logos. And it is, uh, he presents this logos as a living and divine being. Now, the Greek readers who are reading John's gospel, they would sense the import of him using that term logos. Many of them would know that it already has appeared in Greek philosophy. It's even used in terms of reference to the concept of the divine. For his Jewish readers, what would have struck them was that the, the, the first words in the beginning 
would have caught their attention. And that is what would have given them meaning to the term of Logos. They would have thought back to the first words of Scripture that present God the Creator who spoke all things in existence. Indeed, throughout their Scriptures, throughout the Law and the Prophets, the spoken Word of God is characterized as having great power, even the power to give life. So God has Ezekiel speak words that bring dry bones into life. God speaks forth his, his miracles. He prophesies through the prophets what will take place. So God speaks and power goes forth. And so it would not have been a large leap for the Jewish readers to associate Logos, word, with God in the beginning. And indeed, again, verse 2 reinforces that same concept. He, the word, was in the beginning with God. All that is fine. It's the new expression. I mean, it is a new expression, but it's, it's this next idea that would have thrown them off, shaken them up. And that's when he says the word was with God and the word was God. And that would have stopped them at that moment. Was God? How can the word be God and yet with God? Is John introducing a second God? Well, John is a Jew. He's not a Greek. He believes that there is but one God. And what he is doing is stretching the concept of the one God. There is the one God who is two persons. God the Father and God the Son. Other texts, both from John and the other gospel, would lead us to God the Trinity, a Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. John's focus here is on the identity of Jesus Christ. And first things first that he's presenting is, Jesus is the eternal God, our creator. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And this verse um, sheds light, actually, for us on a significant phrase back in Genesis 1.26. At that time, we have, for the creation of man, God says this, let us make man in our image, our likeness. And to whom is God speaking? Well, was it not the Father speaking to the Son? Or considering, for that matter, we know that the Spirit of God was present, the Spirit of God was hovering over the earth. All three persons of God, of the Godhead are speaking to one another. Now, John also presents here the concept of light. Okay. He's saying, now, look, Jesus is the Word, the second person of the Trinity. He is known, we know him as God the Son. Jesus is also the light that breaks into the darkness. And so in verses 4 and 5, he writes, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now again, any Jew reading these words, particularly in verse 5, about shining in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, 
they would think again. Yeah, they go back to the creation count in Genesis, where it says darkness was over the face of the deep until God said, let there be light. So the light that breaks into the darkness of creation is now being recast as the light breaking into a darkened creation. Let's kind of cap here, recall what we've learned so far Okay, from John. The, The word was God from the beginning. The word is our very creator. The word is not simply another name for God, but a distinct person of the Godhead who is with God. He is God the Son. This word is the light of humanity who has come into the world. Now, how? How does he come into the world? Well, that's what we're told in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John goes here from from mystery to astonishing mystery with the word. He's already taken the, the reader to another level of thought by making the word of making the word God yet with God, and now he leads to an even greater astonishment. The word, the eternal God, became flesh. I want to read a, a passage, it's my favorite passage in a book that everyone should know and should read, uh, called Knowing God by J.I. Packham. And he ponders this mystery. Packer writes this. He says, the really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God made man. That the second person of the Godhead became the second man, determining human destiny. The second representative head of the race. And that he took humanity without loss of deity. So that Jesus of Nazareth was as truly and fully divine as he was human. Here are two mysteries for the price of one. The plurality of persons within the unity of God. And the union of Godhead and manhood and the person of Jesus. It is here. And the thing that happened at the first Christmas that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of Christian revelation lie. The Word was made flesh. God became man. The Divine Son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as, as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and talked to like any other child. And there was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the Incarnation. So where is Christmas? Well, Mark and John answer the question, what is Christmas about? 
Mark tells us. It's about the fulfillment of promise. John tells us that it's about, it's about wondrous mystery. The long-awaited Messiah is God, the Creator, made flesh. And those are two good thoughts to contemplate, aren't they, during the Advent season. Just think a moment for the first one. Christmas is about keeping a promise. Our God is a promise keeper. Jesus is the promise. How does that song go? I'll, I'll be home for Christmas. You can count on me. I'll be home for Christmas, if only, in my dreams. Christmas is not about dreams and wishes. It's not about myth. It is about prophecy. It's about promise coming true. It's about the four shadows coming to light. The prophesied Emmanuel is born. The rod of Jesse finally blooms. The day spring breaks upon the dark earth. The key of David is delivered over that opens the gates of heaven. Now think of the second thought. That Christmas is about wondrous mystery. No myth. No fiction can touch the glorious mystery of the Incarnation. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, the lack of modern Christmas is that it's not wondrous enough. It's bogged down with with busyness, with hectic attempts to try to create the magic of Christmas, and all the while losing, you know, what kind of magic they can try to manufacture. Mr. Beaver said of Aslan, you'll understand when you see him. If we will do that, if we take time to, to contemplate the incarnation of our Lord, if we, if we let the scriptures, if we let the hymns that we sing and the songs, if we let them lead us to, to see, to behold the true story of who Jesus is, how he first came to save us, then we might taste the awe that such a truth is meant to give us. You know, for most of you, it would simply be a retasting of what delighted you when you first tasted that the Lord is good. But if you have never experienced that delight of all, the, the joy of blessed mystery, if, if your experience in life has been too many broken promises, and what better time in this Advent season than to, to read the scriptures about the promise of Christmas, of how that promise came true, of how it turned out more wondrous than what could be expected. What better time than now to ask the Lord to open your eyes, to open your heart, to receive his truth and to know his salvation. Our Father, we, we thank you again for this wondrous mystery. We thank you for this promise fulfilled of our Lord Jesus coming to this earth, of the Son of God, of, the, of our Creator, becoming one who was so helpless that his creatures had to take care of him. 
We thank you for this mystery, what it means for us. It's not just a wonderful story to tell and to think about. But what it means for us is our salvation. It is the fulfillment of all of our hopes. We thank you for this wondrous mystery that has come true. In Christ's name, amen.